When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello and welcome to His Darker Materials, the unofficial companion podcast to the official His Dark Materials show on uh, HBO and BBC. I'm Dave Corkery and as always I am with Helen O'Hara. Hello. And uh, today we're going to be talking about episode three of season three of His Dark Materials. Uh, There will be spoilers for everything up to and including that episode and there may be some book spoilers in the interviews that uh, you will hear shortly uh, from the wonderful cast and crew of the show. So be warned. Helen, what did you think of episode three? Yeah, this was, I think, probably a slightly kind of smaller scale episode in some ways after the big kind of confrontation, you know, airships and troops and and gunfights and rampaging polar bears last time. You know, this one's uh, a lot more people talking in rooms in a good way. That's There's no that that is not a bad thing to have good characters talking but i feel like you know we've got lyra and will back together after their long separation we've got them kind of reestablishing and their relationship and figuring out what their next move is we've got really excitingly lord asriel and mrs coulter reunited together. for for a significant amount of time and a significant amount of kind of meaty drama which yeah. is um which is just they stole this episode oh they really, really did they? yeah this is this is a super good episode for the two of them and i think you know a, a lot of that is in the books you know she does get captured in the book obviously she does get um brought to his his stronghold and stuff but it feels like they've really developed it and deepened it in the show, which I'm just living for right now. I'm living for the drama. Well, let's get right into that because let's start there. So on the Asriel camp, yeah, we get right into it. Mrs. Coulter is being kept in a storage unit and then she gets upgraded to uh, a chair with rope. And then by naturally, she, it, it's a progression in this episode, you know, but she starts at a storage unit and you, by the end, she's stolen a spaceship and she's off. We get a load of interesting, as you say, interactions between the two of them. And they're really like, there's a playfulness, isn't there? Between There's a flirtatiousness yeah. between the two of them. There's clearly still an attraction. I feel like both of them are aware that this is maybe the only other person in the world who's on their level. In terms of just capacity yeah. for great things in the sense of large things rather than the sense of good things. Good, you know? yeah, um, yeah, yeah. But, but in, in the sense of being able to sway others to their to their cause in the sense of being very, very, very bright, very powerful, charismatic personalities. There's kind of, neither of them has anyone like the other. And there is still some kind of element of attraction. I think certainly on his part, I don't know, she's obviously harder to read because that's her whole thing. And that's probably part of the reason that he is so attracted to her because I suspect he's used to people falling at his feet and and indeed takes it as his due. Their interaction is is inherently great and i think that's part of the reason that he he just trusts her when every single part of him and every single thing in the world should be telling him 
absolutely don't trust her. But he still, like, he wants to believe that she's on his side. And he's arrogant enough to believe that he can win her over and win her allegiance. Well, he even says that in the line, you know, it's like, why can't you be who I want you to be? It's like, even though he knows she can't, he still wants her to to fall in line, as you said. He knows she's going to betray him. He must know, right? He knows she's she can't be trusted he does yeah. but even to the point where he outsources it he knows he can't trust himself either so he kind of outsources it to his counsel he's like look i i i, I can't even trust my own judgment here so you guys decide <laughs> and naturally she kind of wins them over as well even ruta who's who's like from the office like we should kill her she's killed all these witches even she kind of gets gets won over you know let's yet let's you and she cleverly connivingly convinces all of them that not only is she on the same side as them and she's got the same goal, but that she's kind of just a good mother underneath it all, (laughs) whether or not that's true. (laughs) It's one of these things where she will use a degree of honesty to sell the lie. Yes. You know, yeah. so she talks about the fact that she, you know, I didn't think of her for years. I gave her up, I didn't think of her for years, didn't care, wasn't interested. And it was if you know, if I did, it was only to regret the embarrassment of her birth. That's such a good lie. But now I care. And I think those things are both true, actually. And yeah. then the lie. So now I'm totally with you guys because you guys are my best chance of keeping her alive. <laughs> yeah. When the fact is she's totally with herself as the best chance of keeping Lyra alive. And she will totally use whatever means necessary to secure her safety and her daughter's safety. Exactly. And and the, the funny thing is she's not even subtle about it in the second half of this episode. She's like, hey, look at the look at these blueprints. They're nice. Where do you keep all <laughs> where do you keep all these things? <laughs> but it's like and and even Ruta's like, uh, yeah, right. Um but like what what really bothered me it did bother me about this episode. It's like why why you're going to let, fine, you're, you've decided as a group, we're going to let her roam around the camp freely, right? And if she tries to leave, you know, well, there'll be trouble. But let's not put any security on the most important bit of equipment we have that, you know, this interdimensional starship. Like, huh. Yeah, that, that, was a, that was a choice, wasn't it? That was, a, that was an odd choice. I guess there may have been an element of um, Azrael playing himself there, sort of, if I put more security on it, it'll only draw her attention. Like, if I if I lock a door, Maybe. that's the door she'll want to go through. And and as he says at the end, it's only the second most powerful piece of equipment. He's got a better intention craft that he's been working on. That's true. He does seem largely unfazed at the end. He's very, he's very much like, eh, you go off, have your Lyra adventure. She doesn't even matter anyway. And I thought that was interesting. He keeps coming back to... Lyra's unimportance. It's mm. almost like he's trying to convince himself, you know, because uh, that's all religious mumbo jumbo, you know, and it's just like, if they're right, then he can't be right. You know, and I think that that's what gets him. That's really interesting. Absolutely. Yeah. If if they believe she's Eve and they are wrong about everything, then they must be wrong about that. So why do I keep hearing her name like it matters when it clearly doesn't? Because if, because you're right, almost if she matters, then that means they're right about something and that he can't even countenance that possibility. Exactly, because because that implies fate and prophecy and all these all these things that are intangibly linked with uh, faith and belief and religion and, and and that is what he is opposed to. So yeah, it's it, it, and I think that is why he has this guttural reaction to this this prophecy to this Lyra being this thing. And and he, but he, and he tries to ground it in like 
how could you and I create Eve? You know, this is, we're just people and it's just a, so I think, I think James McAvoy is sensational in this episode, as is Ruth Wilson. And just it's when they're on screen in that, in front of that, the intention craft during that whole scene, it was just, I could have world-class stuff. Like. It, it really is. And I think it's interesting uh, that as a, a few of our interviewees have talked about, in any normal story, these two titanic personalities would be the hero and heroine or the, the hero and villain, however you want to figure it out. And in this, they're very, very important, but they are supporting characters in a girl's journey. And there is something just so exciting and so groundbreaking and so weird about that that makes His Dark Materials what it is. But yet seeing them on screen together in these roles, um, in these just titanically powerful, I think there's an arrogance to both of them. I think it's more obvious in his case, but there is an arrogance to her as well. This this belief that she can basically overwhelm anyone with her guile, with seduction, with deception, with manipulation, whatever it takes, she has it. And there's a self-confidence there. You know, it's shaken a little bit more than his is, I think, occasionally, but not by much. And so just to see them kind of just sparking off each other. It is kind of the, you know, immovable object meets the unopposable force a little bit between the two of them. And 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 I think when they get to that uh, interrogation scene as well, y- you see, you see how far both of them are willing to go to get to get what they need. You know, we spoke about it in the last episode the sort of uh, the hint of relish that Lord Asriel has with that torture. There's a, there's, a, there's almost like he's enjoying it. It feels like he's really reveling in it in in this one in the pain of the angel. And I think what what was I, I think the show's always been really good at telling us using the demons to tell us how a character is feeling. And I loved the touch that Mrs. Coulter sends her demon outside the room for this, you know, this nasty bit of work that she has to be witness to. And that, that almost separation of, right, you know, I'm going to, it's a bit like Father Gomez and his pre-penance. It's like, you know, it's just like, I got to do this terrible thing and I'm going to keep my soul clean of this somehow or somehow do some mental gymnastics to (laughs) convince myself that this is okay. Yeah, and I feel like the, her relationship to her demon, we talked about that a lot last season and, and in season one, but her relationship to her demon does feel like it's changing a little bit now. Like that the unnamed golden monkey is, there's a little bit more sort of communication between them on a level almost, you know, so those scenes last week where they were at the window and and sort of looking at each other like, okay, we're going to figure this out. You know, there, there was, it feels like there may be more united a little bit than they were before that that she's struggling less against her own soul now maybe uh, and maybe that's just because she's allowed a little bit of love into her heart a little bit of love into her life there's there's a sense of redemption's probably too strong a word for mrs coulter but there's a sense sense of uh, you know growing openness to something to lyra obviously but just just to some kind of intangible quality that she has absolutely been sometimes violently repressing and pushing away before, you know, the, the the kind of the abuse she showed her demon in the past does seem to be gone at the moment like that. And, and sending him out of the room for that moment is, is absolutely the, you know, a way to show that. I agree with that. That's yeah, that's, that's really well observed. The demon is a bit more complicit or there's, there's a, they're, they're a bit more, yeah, they're, it's more of a team rather than a, he, he was more servant-like 
in the in the yeah. previous ones, wasn't he? Yeah, very much so. Yeah, ordering him around, like, and sending him on on you know tasks and so on, and 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 even now, you know, even with the violence last episode, even with him literally bringing down a rock on her head, it was it was more a joint decision. It was more a joint. This needs to be done. We're going to do it. Yeah. Rather yeah. than being a, a command and a sort of reluctance, like we've seen from them before, and I think that the change is due to her change in mission, right? I think looking, trying to get to, she is determined this season just to get to Lyra, keep Lyra safe, be a good mother, right? Now we've spoken about her methods being all over the place, but like that is her goal. Whereas previously, she was for the most part in service of the Magisterium and. Or, or kind of herself, but to the you know to the ends of the magisterium, which is kind of all she knew. And I think that inherently goes against sort of her soul or her demon. And now, yeah, they they have a goal that I think that they can unite on. Yeah, exactly that. Uh, th- there's that great line um, that the one about honesty is not a thing to be found. You're either honest or you're not, and neither of us are. That I mean, true. I like that. Yeah. That was very good. I just love the complexity of them both and, and the, the way you see that when they're together. They know each other well. They can call each other on their bullshit to a point. But she has fundamentally changed since the last time he saw her. And it's kind of interesting seeing him grapple with that. Yeah, she has changed, but she is still not honest, right? And still that's what not she's honest, saying. And she's, still, and she's like, I, what I loved about her is that she, you know, she wins. She has won over the council. She can walk around this camp. And they ask her a straight up question, you know, uh, do you know about this knife? And she's like, knife? What knife? Never heard of a Ooh. knife. Uh, is that, <laughs> it's like straight into the lying. Like, But like, she just kind of knows she can just confidently lie her way out of anything. I thought that line was really good about the honesty. And it, 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 it works um, really well with Lyra's um, line about the doubt. You know, she mm. said that something along, you know, the the my parents and the people who have no doubt you know they're they tend to be the bad people because people if you if you doubt yourself you are questioning things and thinking things through and i think it's a similar thing in that there's these you know Azrael and Coulter are they're they're all about absolutes you know i'm either honest or i'm not honest i'm either you know x or i'm, I'm y you're, you're you're either on the side of fighting against um, the authority or or you're not whereas Lyra and Will question everything and kind of find, you know, what is the real answer? And it's that inquisitiveness that really sets them apart, I think. Absolutely. It's the openness to change, you know, and and, and I I think actually, you know, Lyra perhaps underestimates her parents. I think both of them ultimately will change at least a little bit. But it's a real contrast with somebody like Father Gomez or Father McPhail, who will absolutely not change at all. It's absolutely right. You've got to keep your open mind. You've got to you've got to be open to the world and open to learning new things and having your assumptions challenged. And Lyra and Will, I think, are, are young enough that they have that. Having said that, Lyra is not the world's greatest poster girl for either openness to new ideas. When she gets an idea in her head, she is very fixed on it. That's and true. also, she is famously dishonest. She is her mother's daughter in many ways. That, well, you've just described both of her parents' characteristics. Well, true. Right. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Well, he claims not to lie. To be fair, he claims to a good way that he doesn't lie. I, I thought that was interesting. Does is that true? Is that true? It kind of is. I think kind he does. Of. He does bad things, but he's never. You know, he's quite open about the bad things. He's, he does he's pretty way, open right? about. I mean, he didn't. You know, tell Lyra he was going to kill her buddy, but he didn't 
promise him safety, I don't think either. I'm going to have to go back and watch uh, season one, maybe. But he, he's... I, I didn't not say I would kill him. <laughs> it would be a weird <laughs> thing to say, though, wouldn't it? Oh, please, come in. Make yourselves at home. I definitely won't kill your buddy. You know, it, would, <laughs> yeah. it would sound weird. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. All right, I'm delighted to welcome back to the show Amir Wilson, who of course plays Will Parry. He started off really uh, as, a, as a sort of child actor uh, on this show. He has since appeared in TV and films, often with a fantasy bent, but he is now a growing up, going into proper growing up acting, and you get to see that transition, I think, here on screen in season three. As ever with our interviews, this goes with spoilers right up to the end of the season, so please do tread carefully if you haven't finished watching it yet. But otherwise, please enjoy Amir Wilson. So, Amir Wilson, welcome back to uh, to his darker materials. Um, how are you feeling after a what two year gap? How's it? You know, how's life? How's things? Oh, things are great. Um, you know, I finished on his dark materials coming up to a year ago now. Mm-hmm. I think it's like around the year ago mark, around now actually, which is mad to think about because I remember starting the show, filming season three, and it was like, oh, this is going to be a long seven months, and then got to the end of it, and it's like, where did all that time go? What and just it's like, We just created a series, but it's like I, this is all just quite been one big blur almost it's a relief you kind of you do your thing on set and you just hope it goes well and obviously the rest is out of your hands mm-hmm. and then you just hope when it comes out that people people like what they see you know yeah. do you remember first your first time like reading this book first of all and then reading this script mm-hmm. you know did you had you read the book a long time ago i can't remember if you were the one one of the ones who'd read ahead in the books or you were trying to wait with the series no i um so I read kind of in a funky order because i was i was working on something else like a week before i started doing this and i hadn't read any of the books at the start, when I got the role, I hadn't read any of the books. I'd heard about it and I'd seen The Golden Compass, but I hadn't read any of the books. And so just to like keep myself up to date, I read The Subtle Knife first. Right. Like kind of like as I was doing the all my stuff in season one, all of the World's World stuff, I was kind of reading Subtle Knife as that was happening. And then I read The Northern Nights. Right. And then I read The Amber Spyglass. Of course, the natural yeah, reading. Yeah, yeah, of course, as you, <laughs> as, as you do. For being truthful, I wouldn't really go back to the books a lot during filming, I think, because I trust that the script was kind of doing its job in, in, in being faithful for the books, but also because it was important for me to understand that Will's a lot younger in the books. I yeah. think I think on the blurb of my book is that he's about a 13-year-old yeah. kid or a 12-year-old kid. And, and obviously we were playing, I think, 15, 16-year-olds. Obviously it's not a big age difference and obviously still young, but it's, um, I think, in, in, in teenage years, 13 to 15 or 16, it's quite a big gap. Yeah, it feels like a big difference. Um, it, does, yeah. it does feel like a big difference. Obviously, I, I, I love the books, but it was, it was, I spent a lot of time looking at the script material whilst I was filming because that was kind of what I was trying to stay loyal to. Mm, yeah. The Amber Spyglass in particular goes to big places mm. like cosmic, you know, battles between heaven and earth, all of this kind of mind blowing stuff, frankly. So w- was there anything in there where you're like, how are we going to do this? What's yeah, that going to look like? Oh, yeah, there was um, a bunch. Well, the Land of the Dead stuff, I kind of didn't know how that was all going to come together with the harpies and mm. stuff as well. I was like... You know, where do you even start with this? Which is why 
um, just leave it to Jane Schwanzer and all of the big bosses to kind of sort it out. I mean, look, it, it was, um, I think the actors on the show are lucky because everything kind of just falls into place. These guys do all the hard work and then we turn up with a script and a ready-made set and we kind of, for this book, everything's ready and already planned out for us. I can't imagine what it was like for these guys to, to figure out some of the complications in this, in this story and in this book. Because there is a, there's a lot of, there's a lot of detail and there's a lot of things that go on, um, a lot of questions that need to be answered, and it's, um, I think by the time it gets to episode eight, everything kind of comes into a full circle, mm -hmm. and those things, are, those questions are maybe answered, and 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 things are kind of revealed in a sense. Land of the Dead was kind of a big thing. I was like, whoa, how are we going to do this? Um, and also the paradise stuff. Obviously, we ended up going to to Spain, which felt like paradise. So it was, it was <laughs> lucky to be doing my job whilst being in Spain. It's like a dream. I'm guessing, especially after the, I think the pandemic had happened before that, so you'd yeah, been like yeah, locked yeah, up yeah, for a year, yeah. and then suddenly, hey, we're it's filming in Spain. Exactly, exactly. I mean, there was talk about going away to film to do Chittagatsi. Mm -hmm. um, obviously, it didn't happen. We spent it all in in, in on the Cardiff backlot, which is again was incredible because it's like Joel Collins and everyone who was involved in designing these sets did like a an amazing job. It's like I have I have no way to describe it. But so fast as actors, it's like when they said action or when we were kind of walking in and out. You said as soon as they dimmed the lights and added a bit of smoke and fog, it like it really felt like came we alive. Were, yeah, it yeah. really felt like uses. And we were lucky enough not to spend all of our days standing in front of a green screen, mm. which is what people often assume you're doing when you're filming a, a fantasy mm. show or a show that's heavily um, visually put together. Yeah. yeah. You've done quite a few different fantasy stuff yeah, things. I think most of the things I've done have been fantasy. Is that just like is that where your interest lies, or is that no, just well, what's yeah, happened? Now it's not where my interest lies. I tell you that. Um, no, I mean, look, I'm, I'm filming a BFI film next year, which is a drama based in London, which would be the first thing I've done that isn't kind of fantastical. Um, and filming fantasy is great because it it, it 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 really makes you use your imagination, which is kind of the best thing about fantasy. It's like you spend all day just imagining stuff. As you get older, you um, you lose your creativity. I think um, not me personally, but I just think in general, obviously you have such everyone's kind of full of creativity as a young child as um, a younger kid and then as you grow up it kind of gets dimmed down through school and whatever um, but it's nice when I do these fantasy projects that I get to um, kind of tap into that younger me of like you know, it feels like I'm just playing dress up as a kid and I'm kind of running about my room type of thing. Yeah. Tell me about, I mean, uh, we, we meet Will's demon this season, right? Mm -hmm. So what was it like? Yeah, actually kind of, you know, getting to getting to play that. I, I, yeah, it was, um, I felt complete. I kind of felt left out. Everyone had a demon and I didn't. And everyone was kind of, what's all this demon talk about? Obviously, I'd had a couple of scenes with Pan, but it was nice to get my own demon. And Bobby, who um, puppeteers my demon, it was um, obviously brilliant. She's um, a brilliant puppeteer. And the, all the puppeteers on this job are kind of brilliant because they, they give you enough to um, make you feel like you're able to give a good performance. It's not just like these guys stand there with puppets. It's like these guys are... There's obviously dialogue that they're reading. Um, um, and obviously it gets voiced over in the end by certain different actors, but it's like um, we're lucky enough to have these people on set so that are kind of helping us navigate. And they're there and they're, they're, you work with them. It's not like they'll be like, oh, is it easier if I go here or here? And obviously they tell you, you know, whether where it's best to put your hand for visual effects reasons and probably money reasons as well. Um, it's kind of, uh, I don't know how much it costs to stroke a, stroke a demon in, in, in visual effects money, but I can imagine it's probably quite a lot. Um, <laughs> But no, it was cool to 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 be able to to have a demon and 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 be able to 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 do more scenes with demons. Yeah. yeah, and having something like that to play off makes such a difference. I have interviewed Kermit the Frog. Yeah. So and I find myself talking to Kermit even <laughs> though I could see Steve Whitmire behind yeah, yeah, yeah. him. You know, because yeah. it's it's, crazy, it's, it's it? really it's a really good it's a, puppeteer. It's, it's is incredible. Really, I, I don't think I could do it. It's, it actually is a really it's a talent to be able mm -hmm. to to do it to a, a good ability. Definitely. Yeah. What about the Malefas and so on as well? I mean, you've got. Big challenges this season. Yeah, 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 yeah exactly. I mean, it, it, there's obviously, as as you would know, um, there's just like 
so much more going on this season. More characters, more creatures, more worlds. And all of that was just kind of a, a delight for me. Mm. Is, is, is Season two was obviously very Chittagati based, which is great. Um, but it was really exciting. I had the most fun filming this because it was like just such a bigger scale and there was so much more going on. Mm -hmm. It was always just something new and different going on every day, which is like a, a blessing for me. And it felt like in these first two episodes, especially, you know, Will is literally traveling across worlds, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, you know, meeting angels, me fighting polar bears, and Daphne's just asleep. Well, yeah, you know, Daphne so so you must have, yeah, you know. And I pulled the short straw. I get to do, I mean, all, had to do all this traveling. Um, no, <laughs> it was... Um, Daphne spent the first two episodes sleeping. Lucky her. Um, no, it was it was fun. We filmed Bone White World. I remember where, where I first kind of have an interaction with the angels, and they tell me about the knife, and I tell them that I'm not going with them. Um, that was filmed at like a, a quarry, I think, just outside of I think it's in Wales, or maybe just in Bristol, near right. Bristol, not too far away though. And it was uh, a clay quarry, but it was really hot that day, so they had these. Obviously, it's a Chloe Corey and the white reflecting into oh, my yeah. eyes. So I remember just like, there were action and I was kind of just like squinting. Like, I can't even do this right now. And obviously, Cobbler and Simon, who played Baruch and Bathamos, uh, are brilliant and so lovely as well. I had a, a joy filming the, with these guys. Yeah, that's awesome. Um, I, I was going to ask as well about Will obviously went through, well, Will has basically been through trauma every season. Yeah. Well, the, the, you know, Will's life is not has never been easy. Um, but I think you see the echoes of that already in these first two episodes. You know, he's dealing with the death of his father, mm -hmm. found him and lost him almost in the same breath. And then all Mrs. Coulter has to do is bring up his mum yeah, and it exactly. just completely throws exactly. him again, you know. Yes, yeah, I mean, it's sad I always feel bad for. It's like he has like the best and worst moment of his life with his dad all in the space of five minutes. He sees his dad and thinks his dad's dead his whole life. And at the end of season two, you know, it's obviously, yeah, as you said, you touched on it, but it's, it's traumatic for him. And these experiences which change you, which is why it was important for me to establish a new and stronger will going in, because it's like in real life, these your experiences do change you and they do for the better or for the worse, you know, make you a stronger person. But you know, he uh, sees his dad and then within five minutes, his dad dies again in front of him. Uh, his dad obviously gives him the, the kind of the dying message, the dying wish of delivering this knife to Asriel. He goes back to tell Lyra and she's gone as well. It's like two important people in his life gone within, you know, within minutes. Um, it, it's tough, but it was definitely, I think but when we pick up Will in season three, he's had time to reflect mm. on his emotions. Not that they still affect him and stuff, but he's definitely had time to reflect and kind of um, come to terms with maybe some of the things that's happened mm. with him. And that was important just for me to understand that, yeah, it's a, a new and stronger will, more grown up version. I'd obviously grown up as well, yeah. but it's fun to be able to to do that. Yeah. And, and you get the sense that he's, you know, having essentially been on this one quest to find his dad for a while he's now given himself another yeah. like just just to give him something else to focus on like yeah. now i've got to find lyra yeah, and then exactly. then we can talk exactly. about whatever well, yeah, else you want to talk about that's you know? what came yeah it was like the, the decision of whether he had the option of well he had the alethiometer and he had the knife he had the option of going straight to Asriel, or we had the option of finding lyra and he picked the moral decision you know which i think i admire will for that mm. i wouldn't have <laughs> <laughs> just get well, take this stuff well, away from me let me go i have a alethiometer and a knife i do not need lyra no um <laughs> I do think that's one of the best things about Will, though, his his morality and how he's so selfless. He really puts other people in front of him. Yeah, um, I think that's like such a a good thing to take away from a character. Absolutely, and and the relationship between him and Lyra, being able to to do that was fun as well. Um, kind of establish the relationship between between Will and Lyra. I felt it talked about it being more. You know, everyone assumes it's kind of this lovey dovey thing, and it's like it, it's not really. It's it, it, what it really is is two friends who then 
maybe realize that they might be something more than friends but they are just friends so like yeah. even when he sees her for the first time again it's not like oh, he's in awe of this girl it's like this is i'm so happy to have my friend with me again yeah. kind of be with this person um and they i think that's the reason they they both have traumatic experiences and they they feel like they can trust one another which is the great thing it's, it's weird actually somebody was saying to me yesterday that um, James Cameron was giving a story class and he was saying you can't show two people on screen falling in love all you can show is two people learning to trust each other yeah, that's and it. that's essentially the same thing yeah. but it's a you know it's it that's something you can actually illustrate yeah, which I think exactly. is lovely between them um, what about new cast members this season um, who, do, who did you have to work with obviously Baruch and, yeah, yeah. Um, and the Angels uh, but who else yes well I um, worked with Joe Tanberg for the first time he plays Yorick Bernison mm. and he's absolutely incredible um, um, his ability to, um, he's a Norwegian, but his ability to like just switch into this big voice. He doesn't sound, his, his natural voice obviously doesn't sound like Yorick at all, but his yeah. ability to switch into these voices, like it's nothing. It's like, I'm in awe of it. I, I couldn't imagine doing it. Working with him was great. I got along with him on and off screen. Um, I go climbing with him a lot. Hey, I'm a big rock cool. climber, so he's into climbing as well. Yeah. I was going to go see him a couple months ago in Norway, but things didn't work out. I was, yeah, schedules just kind of didn't allow that to happen. Uh, I worked with Ruth for the first time kind of directly. We had our, obviously a moment, obviously I see her in season two and we have that thing in Boreal's house, that mm. kind of like escape mission type mm -hmm. of thing. I had a scene with Ruth and working with Ruth is, she's just incredible because obviously Ruth obviously a lot of the time plays these really serious roles and serious characters and these strong characters. But off camera, she's just really, really lovely and, and like a, a kind of a pleasure to be around. Um, I admire her work and I admire her, her ability to, to kind of switch into these roles like mm. it's nothing yeah and just just finally because I, I think we have to finish up but uh th you're climbing on set did you actually break any sets or was it you know just i broke uh, like a <laughs> like a the malefa tree sets i kind of broke a bit of the fake wood off which is a bit bad i, I tried to like put on something it ripped off um and on the land of the dead set there was a bunch of stuff that i tried to climb I just get told a lot off by the ads. In actually, in that bone white world, there is a, there was a mound of clay that I climbed to the top of, and I got shouted at really badly because <laughs> I mean you can't do that. But yes, the the stories of climbing are true. But I blow off steam at the end of the day by going to the climbing set. There's a lot of climbing. There's a place called Boulders, which is like five minutes away from the studio. And there's a place called Rock Block. I'd go there at the end of the day, kind of just to to blow off steam. Because if not, I just think about what I do that day, and it's like you'd end up just sitting and dwelling on, oh, maybe I could have done this, or maybe I could have done that. But I'd go climbing at the end of the day, and kind of it would clear my mind. Get out of your system. So you're ready for the next, like when Tom Cruise calls for the Mission Impossible 23. When Tom Cruise you know. calls me and asks me to climb something crazy, I will one billion percent be there, no doubt. I promise. <laughs> awesome. Well, listen, thank you so much. Thank and, you. And uh, yeah, can't wait to see the rest of season three. Should we talk about Roger? Should we talk about the land of the dead then? Yeah, so we get um, so we get another dream. So Lara's have been having three episodes of dreams now, um, and she's dead convinced they ain't just dreams, uh, that this is Roger. She's talking to him. He's in the land of the dead. Um, and she manages to convince Will of the same. They, and this is interesting because they're reunited at last, and they kind of have a little catch-up and a tete-a-tete. Uh, and then it, it kind of instantly becomes a confrontation because they realise that they have very different objectives. Yeah, he's he's figured out. Okay, so I find Lyra now. That was that was job number one. So job number two is now to do what my dad told me, do what the angels told me even, and uh, go to Lord Azrael with this knife with the uh, Asahitra. So he's kind of like pretty clear on that. Obviously, he has to fix the knife first, but that's his that's his path as he sees it. 
And she has become completely convinced of this of the reality of the land of the dead. It is interesting. Like she has reason for that. That the line Pan had about not he said he couldn't go with her. You know, so th- th- that maybe kind of tends to back up her feeling that this is a real place, that this is a real thing. But yeah, it is. It is immediately sort of puts them at odds again. And it's interesting that Lyra ultimately gets her way. That you know, Will trusts her to that degree. She wants to go to the land of the dead. And ultimately, you know, it takes him a minute, but he is ultimately like, yeah, all right, let's do that then. And that's back to their that whole thing about the doubt, right? You know, they, they, they unlike an Azrael or a Coulter, they kind of have the confrontation. They discuss it. They kind of figure out each other's perspectives. And then they choose loyalty and they choose each other, right? And that's something that someone like Azrael does not do, right? He just has a goal and he doesn't care how you get there and the end's justifies the means whereas will and lyra express loyalty and compassion to their to their friends above all else and i think that's that is another thing that sets them apart absolutely i mean the the fact that lyra is so loyal to roger so first of all she went to literally the end of the earth she went to the arctic to find him, to rescue him. She enlisted whoever she needed to, to up to and including armoured polar bears <laughs> yeah. to do that. Secondly, having it's ultimately failed in that goal, having ultimately uh, seen him die and, and been powerless to prevent it, she is now determined and, and to go to the land of the dead, not to particularly rescue him, but to apologise. Like That is her stated aim, It's is to apologise to him and that that to me is fascinating that 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 is a level of compassion and a level of loyalty that is really extraordinary she will you know go to the end of all the earths in order to to try and put things right with her friend and try and help him out however he needs it's, for, it's just for some reason it's reminding me of that michael fassbender guinness ad did you ever see that one i don't think i did anyway, he like uh, uh, swims across the atlantic ocean to apologize to his brother in a bar in new york um <laughs> <laughs> bit a bit of that vibe about it. I, I can see that, yeah. But to get there, obviously, she does need to fix the knife. So we have this whole um, very rings of very rings of power kind of, kind of <laughs> scene with uh, a Yorick Burnison, the bear, the blacksmith, the legend. I do wonder how a, uh, a creature without uh, hands or opposable thumbs can be the best blacksmith in the world. But uh, and they don't. They still don't really answer that. Okay, they 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 shoot around it quite carefully. I like the idea of you know showing how he. He sort of manufactures the little sort of bowl to melt the metal of the pieces and put them back together. You know, he, there, there's an element of of showing you how he would do it. But yes, it does crucially leave out the bit with the thumbs and the fingers. <laughs> how is he picking up tiny, tiny little things? <laughs> yeah, look, I, I mean, I feel like you're, it, 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 I don't know is the answer. I don't know. <laughs> I need answers. <laughs> but I, I did like that. Well, conveniently for him, a lot of a lot of the work t- tends to be on Will's side. Uh, you know, the focus and the um, and, and and I think this ties in with the, how the knife uh, works, right? He needs to be, and that's how it broke because his doubts came in, and that's you know, doubt was the is the enemy of focus. Uh, that's what broke the knife, and reversing it is what fixed the knife. And I think the the other interesting thing we saw in the uh, you know that that scene is Will is. You know, he's thinking in that moment where he's trying to focus he's, and what's important, he's thinking of his father, then his mother comes in. And then ultimately he settles on Lyra and she becomes his focus, which I thought was nice. Yeah, I thought that was that was really, really well done. And it, it does tie in as well to this stuff about Lord Azrael's intention craft in the last yeah. in the last episode. You know, your mind isn't focused, the craft 
works on focus. It needs you need to be intent on your destination or it can't get you there and your mind is torn. And here he needs to be intent on the knife and, and to do that he kind of yeah focuses on Lyra because she is the one that that he is loyal to and she is the one that he is non-conflicted about. Because I think, you know, his his relationship with his mum, which we talked about a lot last season, is central and profoundly important to his character. This idea that he has had to be the adult in the relationship. He's had to be the responsible party. And even I think when, and we don't see all of this on screen, but even when she's been healthier, presumably, he's always still been on edge because what if, you know, she declines again? What if things come back? So that I think that's the duality. That's the that's the terror in his feelings about his mother. That's why they're so kind of mixed up and why they kind of take away his intention. Whether whereas with Lyra, it's completely clear. I trust her. I'm with her. We're going on this journey together, and that is that's lovely. It's it's it's, yeah, it's the purity of their relationship, isn't it? It is nice, and there is there doesn't seem to be any doubt when it comes to them, right? It is just just certainty. So yeah, I mean, and they're so they're together again. They've worked through their difficulties and they are now off to the land of the dead. And we get a quick glimpse of it in uh, in, in this episode. Well, we'd seen it kind of in the dreams, but it, it's kind of like a post-apocalyptic... Uh, Bureaucracy. Bureau- yeah, yeah. There's, everything's numbered. There's some people wandering down. So yeah, yeah. I, I'm quite keen to see more of how they're going to bring this to to life because it was one of the more interesting sort of uh, elements of the book i thought yeah i i think the way that they've uh, envisaged this is is really fascinating and again you know we've we've talked about the production design on this show before being astonishing but like that it's a difficult thing to do the land of the dead what does that look like apart from putting a filter on your camera and making everything look a bit drab like what do you do and in <laughs> yeah, fact yeah. they haven't really done that they've actually gone kind of the other way and made it look as you say, post-apocalyptic, that sort of green-yellow kind of... It's almost like the way really bad office lights just drain all colour from your skin. You know, it's yeah, that kind it of a colour. Like that. That I've, I've worked there in the land of you've, the dead. You've worked it. <laughs> I've worked in many lands of the dead. Yeah. I think I did a, bit, a stint there back in the day as well, yeah. <laughs> so so I thought that was really effective because it's just it's not the obvious sort of skulls and crossbones and skeletons and Cerberus yes. and you know, who, all the who rest. Who goes there? Exactly. <laughs> it's just something grayer and more draining and more depressing. And I think that that accords with what Philip Pullman describes in the book, that accords with this idea of a a place where people are trapped, that it's more purgatorial than hellish, you know, that it's a, a kind of a, a, a sapping, energy sucking void of a place. And, you know, it's hard to think of a place more like that than an office. It's a, it's actually, and it's quite reminiscent of the um, the facility in uh, season uh, one. Oh, uh, very was, good point. Yeah. Coulter is running. Um, and we get, we even get a, a sort of a callback to that in this episode when uh, Dr. Cooper um, is brought in by Father McPhail, uh, who was one of the scientists there. And uh, this is, so this comes about because, well, firstly, Father Gomez is not dead. Um, good for yes, him. Yes, damn it. Um, and uh, he says, he says basically, you know, we are not going to fight. We're not going to get her or, or win this war with man-made um, objects or power. So this puts the idea in Father President MacPhail's head to use the tools of his enemy. I, 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 w- I would say in Mrs. Coulter and and Azrael. So he's looking for science religion is looking to use science to to further its ends basically absolutely as long as it accords with what we think is true then science is a-okay yeah. but only that far or he'll sweep it under the rug or he'll sweep well. it under I, the rug this does feel like a black ops 
religious mission, it, doesn't it? That's absolutely right. I think it does. I think it's interesting that we're seeing, probably happens pretty much in real life, but you're seeing that when one person makes kind of a breakthrough in dust, then suddenly they all follow like dominoes falling. You know, once you've established one thing, then suddenly everything else becomes easier. So, you know, we've gone from essentially Azrael presenting a photo of dust or evidence of dust, sort of season one, episode one, as, as a, something revolutionary, something that had only been whispered and talked about before, to both he and Mrs. Coulter weaponizing it by the end of that season and using yes. it in some way and manipulating it in some way. And then, you know, now he's got the intention craft, he's traveling between worlds, there's the knife that we're aware of, you know, it feels like some kind of dam has broken and now this flood of innovation whether hellish or not, is kind of flowing out. And that that's exactly it. And that's that's a good commentary on science in our reality as well, right? I mean, as soon as the atom was discovered and all of its implications, we got the atom bomb and et cetera, et cetera. The, and, and I think this show is doing a good uh, job of portraying how a wondrous thing such as dust, and, and, and I think you're right, coming back to that photo in that first episode, it's so magical. And then you, by the end, a child has been murdered by this, you know, and now we're now it's being used as a weaponized by um, the, the magisterium. So it's, it, it is science uh, can be used for evil as much as it has the potential for good. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, not a good time for Dr. Cooper, it seems like, but you know. I love the little touch of her, um, her demon uh, sort of cowering behind her. I love, I love again how they show the dynamics between characters of the demon. We forgot to um, uh, talk about it in a previous episode, but the, there's that, that moment where Father Gomez goes into Fra Pavel to crack the whip and his, his finger is like edging closer and closer to his demon in this kind of threatening way to, to Fra Pavel's demon. And then, and then the demon sort of lowers its head in a sort of, Sub- subjugated sort of fashion. I think it's just like hats off again to the um, the visual effects team who are doing a fantastic job uh, with bringing these animals to life and the puppetry that we know goes into it behind the scenes. Absolutely. Yeah, it, yeah. that that moment was actually really chilling because we know the prohibition, we know the taboo on touching another person's demon. And so the fact that he's very close to breaking that taboo is is really, yeah, it really shows how ruthless and how unrestrained, frankly, he is in that ruthlessness. He's such a dick. He's just the worst. <laughs> All right. So um, I think we've kind of covered everything, except uh, we do check in with uh, old Mary Malone. Yeah, she's still having a lovely walk in the country and occasionally <laughs> yeah, I mean, writing in a book. Three episodes in, she's not had much to do, but she's definitely having the best time of any of our characters so far. I think that's fair. It's, it's not a high bar, I'll be honest. Azrael's <laughs> no. probably having a pretty good time as well. He does seem like he's enjoying himself. He's like, he's in his element. He's got a bunch of people following his every whim. He's got his ex tied to a chair. I don't know his kinks, but he seems happy about it. <laughs> you know, he's he's well on his way to to bringing down the authority. You know, he's doing okay. But yes, Mary Malone is definitely having the most conventionally nice time here. She's just having a pleasant stroll through the woods she's stopping along the way for a nice cup of tea and a chat and uh <laughs> and off she goes i see for me i thought there was something ominous about the her little side quest with the the two young women i, I thought is this gonna is this, something's gonna happen here it's going a bit sour but no it's just no. A, just a just, nice pit stop just stopped off had a chat moved on you know so i think that uh brings us to the end of i think it does yeah so three so presumably next time Land of the Dead. I think so. I look forward to that. Wow, yeah. Exciting stuff. Yeah. 
get your fluorescent lights ready. <laughs> just just like I'm just going to put on honestly pink bulbs in the house just so I feel okay <laughs> as, as yeah. they go through it, yeah. you know. It's warm lighting, that's all. It warm means. lighting, very warm yeah. lighting. At least it's Christmas time. We've all got fairy lights up for Christmas, so that's true. hopefully that will help. <laughs> all right, see you soon. Cheers, see you soon. Is Darker Materials is a stripped media production. Our producer and editor is Maddie Searle. All our music was composed by John Dix. Our artwork was created by Sam Gilby. Our executive producers are Kobe Amanaka and Tom Wally. Our hosts are Helen O'Hara and myself, Dave Corkery. A big thank you to Ian Johnson at IJPR, to Bad Wolf at the BBC, and to all our guests for taking the time to chat to us. If you want to chat to us, you can do it at producers at stripped.media. You just heard a stripped media production.